The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. And so the reading today will come from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 19. It'll be up on the screen, or if you open your Bibles to that, um, and we'll read a little bit about why this happens. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. When the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God said to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree, about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it and all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So, some of you may or may not know, most of us become pastors by going to a place called the cemetery. I'm sorry, there's a slip, it's called seminary, Uh, I have some dark memories of that place, but... Uh, There is a place called Seminary, and it's uh, typically a graduate school, and that's where we learn about the Bible, and we learn Greek and Hebrew and all this kind of stuff, right? Well, my seminary looked like this, and I used to tell people that I went to the original Hogwarts, right? So long before J.K. Rowling wrote her book, I went to a school in a castle where my professors dressed up in robes, they spoke in ancient languages. We believed in miracles. I'm like, guys, that's Hogwarts, right? There's magic there, big castle. This idea that I went to school in this ancient monolithic building, right? Beyond that, though, we actually had fantasy creatures in our school. 
This is from The Hobbit, describing what a hobbit is. This will make sense in a moment why I'm saying this. I suppose hobbits need no descriptions nowadays, since they have become rare and shy of the big people, as they call us. They are a little folk, about half our height, and smaller than the bearded dwarves. Hobbits have no beards. There is little or no magic about them, except the ordinary, everyday sort, which helps them to discover, disappear quickly and quietly when large, stupid folk like you and me come blundering along, making a noise like the elephants, which they can hear a mile off. They are inclined to be fat in the stomach. They dress in bright colors, chiefly green and yellow. They wear no shoes because their feet grow naturally leather soles and thick, warm brown hair like the stuff on their heads, which is curly. They have long brown clever fingers, good-natured faces, laugh deep and fruity laughs, especially after dinner, which they have twice a day when they can get it. The reason why I bring this up is because I am convinced one of my professors was a hobbit. His name was Robert Cole. Uh, he was half British, half American. He had this British accent. He was just shy over five feet tall, but he rarely wore sandals or uh, shoes, so he would walk around barefoot. He had hairy feet, uh, and he was the most good-natured academic professor we had at school. And all of us had to take him at one point, and when we would ask questions of him, and we would say, hey, what about this? What about that? He always had a response before he would answer our questions. And the response was simple, and he would say, well, why do you want to know? And what he was trying to train us as pastors was that oftentimes when someone comes to ask you one question, they might actually be asking a different question behind it. And the example he would use would say, well, imagine if a husband or a wife came up to you and said, pastor, I have a question. And you said, okay. And they said, Is, can God forgive adultery? And on the first glance, a pastor might say, absolutely, God can forgive anything, right? Any kind of sin, any kind of hurt. Our God is a God of grace. Our God is a God of purity. But that might not be the actual question they're asking. They may be asking, can God forgive adultery because as a husband or a wife, things are rough in their marriage. And they're thinking they might have a better option. And so the question really isn't, can God forgive adultery? But the question is, will God be okay if I commit adultery? Which is a very different question. And at which point, that place, as a pastor, I'm not supposed to say, oh, God, forgive, forgive anything, so do whatever you want. No. The real question is, God created man and woman to come together, to create something whole that nothing else is supposed to get involved with. Same question. Two very, very different answers. And the reason why I bring that up is because today, we're looking at the question, well, why do people die? And that can have two or even three or four different questions that are behind that. One of my best friends in Madison was an atheist. And the first time we got together, uh, he was interested in some of the work the church was doing in the community. And he said, Josh, I really love this. I'd love to partner with you with this. Um, mind you, I don't believe in God, he said, and I don't want to talk about God. But then for the next 55 minutes, we talked about God, right? He brought up the question. And one of the things he asked me was, well, what about death? How do we connect death with a good God. And he was asking it from a philosophical standpoint. Right? He had thinking questions. He was trying to reason with me. But that is a very different question than if someone comes up to me and says, Josh, why did, why did my grandpa die last week? Why did my brother die? 
Why, why did my friend commit suicide? At that point, they're not looking for a philosophical argument. They're not trying to be reasoned with. Those are two completely different questions. And so today, we're going to look at both of those questions, uh, and one of them is going to be actually a lot simpler than the other. And that's the philosophical question, the thinking question, well, why do people die? And the answer is pretty simple. See, death is a consequence of rebelling against creation's order. The Bible reading that we read comes from Genesis. And it's after God coming in and saying, the world is good. Creation's good. Humanity is good. And there is this order where God creates the world. And then he creates mankind and he says, I want you to take care of this world. I want to teach you how to bring the best out of this world. Because I want you guys to be connected to each other. I want you guys to be connected to me. It was this harmony, this symphony that God had created and put together. But what happens is in Genesis, we see that order, God, us, creation, and we're like, you know, we're not sure if we want to be the middlemen anymore. In fact, it might be easier, it might be better, if we just take God's place. And so the whole point of us eating the apple, right, is we wanted to be like God. We wanted his position. We wanted to be at the top. And our own best thinking introduced something to the environment, to creation, that broke it all down. I have a friend who has these massive uh, fish tanks. And they're salt water, and he's got all these different kinds of um, fish, but then also the coral reefs, and it's gorgeous. But what's interesting about those fish tanks, 150, 200 pound fish tanks, is if you introduce one foreign element that's not supposed to be there, it kills everything. Every coral is dying. Every fish is dying. Because it's not the way it was meant to be. That's what happened with sin. Sin comes into the picture and Genesis tells us, to Adam God said, because you have listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree of which I have commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. We introduced something into an environment that wasn't supposed to be there. Our rebellion threw off the system. And all of a sudden, creation started to break down. Our relationship with God started to break down. Our relationship with each other started to break down. Our relationship with the world started to break down. And the culmination, the apex of what that looks like is death. It is sin's natural and only conclusion. And the reason, though, why sin hurts so much, that explains that too. Right? We weren't built for death. It's foreign to what we were supposed to receive. The world was meant to be good. We have a God of life. And so the reason why when someone dies, it hurts so much. Why it feels like you are literally being ripped in half and you're losing a part of yourself is because you actually are losing a part of yourself. 
a foreign object to what creation was supposed to be shows up. And so, the simplest answer to why is there death? It's sin. It's that brokenness. That's the intellectual, that is the philosophical reasoning for why death is a thing, why death hurts so much. But again, that, that's only one of the questions. Right? Because if someone you love dies, quite frankly, you already know all this. You know sin isn't right. You can feel it in your gut. You can feel it in your heart. And so when you are asking the question or looking at a person who was there and isn't there anymore, well, there's a different response. There's a different answer. We actually see Jesus answer that question when he encounters death. Story goes that he had a bunch of friends. One of them was Lazarus. And Lazarus got sick. And so his sisters, Mary and Martha, call and reach out to Jesus. And Jesus wasn't in town. He was far away. And so they send messengers. Hey, your friend, Lazarus, he's sick. And we have seen you heal the blind. We have seen you heal the lame. We've seen you heal lepers. One of your best friends is sick now. He needs you. But Jesus doesn't get there in time. So Jesus comes in. And this is the story. And two sisters ask the exact same question, but notice that Jesus has two completely different responses for them. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and so many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary had stayed at home. Lord, Martha said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even though they die, uh, will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who's come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Mary had left him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed her quickly leave, she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said the exact same thing Martha does. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But others said, well, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Two exact same responses. If you had been here, Jesus... Lazarus wouldn't have died, which is actually true, right? Jesus could have healed him. He'd done it before, and they come before Jesus 
with the reality of death, the reality of pain, all too real. Jesus responds to Martha, and Jesus, Martha's response has a comma after it. She says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I still believe you're the Messiah. And so for her, Jesus' response, he speaks the gospel. He shares the good news. And he says, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. To those who are struggling with death and who are looking towards, all right, God, what comes next? Jesus shares the gospel, his message, his purpose, and he says, I'm going to die so all may live. He says, watch me. Keep your eyes on me. I promise this isn't the end of the story. He shares the good news that our God is bigger than death. That even that heart-rendering moment, even when we are separated from our loved ones, we have a God who says, I'm not done yet. We have a God who says, this isn't the end of the story. He shares the gospel in the hurt and the pain of death. But, same question. Mary sees him, if you had been here, Lord, you wouldn't have died. And she's not there yet. She's still heartbroken. She's still weeping. And so instead of giving her a sermon, instead of saying, all right, I'm going to give you the philosophical reason why your brother had to die, instead of even saying, I'm about to raise him back to life, what is Jesus' first response? To Mary, Jesus shares God's heart. He says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they said. And Jesus wept. Jesus enters into that question, into that statement. Instead of trying to come up with an answer, instead of trying to make everything right, he says, I'm just going to cry with you. I'm just going to let your pain be real because your pain is real. But in showing up, he connects with her and he makes sure she realizes you're not alone. I'll mourn with you. I'll cry with you. And again, Jesus knows he's about to go raise Lazarus from the dead, right? He knows how the story is going to end. And yet in that moment, his response is, you are not alone. You are loved. You are cared for. And I'll just cry with you. I was about 19 or 20 when my church did a series called Clinging to the Cross. And uh, we all got little crosses like this that we were allowed to hold on to. And it was about, in response to pain, in response to death, the idea was we hold to the cross. And I'm going to be honest, I chafed at this. Because while I believe in the cross, while I believe certainly that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, I tend to be a fairly cheerful dude. And I like the happier Bible verses. Stuff like, for how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And so I went to my pastor and I said, Pastor, I think we've got this wrong. I don't think we should have to hold to the cross in death. There's a better story to tell. He said, Josh, Josh, the story's real. You're right. But he goes, but sometimes in the pain, in the hurt, people just need to hurt. And in the cross, he goes, we see God's heart and we see that God hurts with us. 
And still, I was like, I, I don't know. Well, then I had some family trauma. And it wasn't death, but it was as close to death as you can get. And there was an immediate member of my family that a situation went south in a hurry. And while I still believed in all those positive, happy Bible verses, my heart was broke. And what I realized was the idea of clinging to the cross. It shows us God's heart. It doesn't answer the question of why death. It doesn't answer the question or give us any reasoning for what the future is going to hold. But at the cross, we see God's heart. At the cross, we see how far God will go to have a relationship with us. How far God will go to conquer death. And it doesn't answer the question of why bad things happen, but what it does say is we have a God that we can trust, a God that will go to any length to have a relationship with us to put the world back to the way it was supposed to be. And so in those moments of pain, in that hurt, we hold to the cross and we're like, God, I don't have any answers. Nothing feels right, but I can trust that God to make things right. I can trust that God to cry with me. I can trust that God to continue working. I can trust that God when nothing makes sense. That I have a Savior whose heart is so big and so beautiful and so strong that he'll die for me. And then that faith rolls over into other questions. And so when we talk about, well, who goes to heaven and who goes to hell? We don't know. I mean, we know it's belief in Christ, but we're not in control of who believes in Christ and who doesn't believe in Christ. Where do we put our faith? On the God of the cross. We trust that God's heart. And so even when we don't know, well, did they make it? Did they understand? I don't know. But I believe in that God. And if that God went to that length to have a relationship with me, he's sure as hell and heaven going to chase them down. And I have a lot more faith in that God's heart than I do in my broken heart. Than I do in my family's broken heart. And so we have faith. We have strength in that God. One of my favorite Bible verses comes from Romans. And Paul's writing and he says, God, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Paul says we have a God who went to rather extreme lengths to get rid of sin, to get rid of death. He says if God went to those lengths here, will he not go to any other length in all the other challenges we face, in our families, in our communities, in our relationships with each other, in our relationship with God? Paul says trust in the God of the cross. We saw his heart there. That's our foundation. That's where we place our faith. Because we do not have a God of death. We have a God who conquered death. Who conquered the curse. And who's putting the world back the way it's supposed to be. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you asking for forgiveness asking 
to start to put us back into creation the way it's supposed to be. Lord, our own best thinking, even to this day, gets us into trouble. We find ourselves rebelling against you, rebelling against our families, rebelling against our communities. Lord, we pray that you continually return us to you. Lord, forgiving us, washing us clean, and sending us into life. Because God, you are the God who said, I have come that you may have life and life abundantly. Lord, we pray for that life as we go forward from here. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.